0: Tonight's reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 2 verse 5 and that can be found in the church Bibles on page 1144. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not of wise and persuasive words, but of a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power.
1: Well, good evening, everyone. I don't know how closely you follow the news. I wonder if you remember in January this year, there was a tragedy when a 14-year-old schoolgirl, she was called Molly Russell, she committed suicide. And her parents blamed it on social media. This girl had been so obsessed with what people thought about her. And since then, there's been a certain amount of discussion and psychologists calling for the tech companies to be compelled to share their data, the Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, because of the risks to young people's mental health, the danger of an obsession, an excessive anxiety about what people think of them. And I guess I guess we all want people to think well of us, don't we? That's natural. But as Paul writes here in Corinthians, he tells us that as Christians, we need to be prepared for other people to look down on us. We have to be ready for that. We have to expect it. There was a time in Britain when being a Christian was something that was respected or even admired. I can remember that when I was a little kid in Scotland. But these days are, well, they're long gone really, aren't they? And increasingly, Christians are being laughed at and marginalized in Britain, even opposed. And we're, well, we're just going to have to come to terms with it now that's the last thing that the christians in corinth that paul is writing to are thinking about the last thing they want to hear if you were here last sunday as we started first corinthians we saw that the the corinthian christians have been putting some of their church leaders on pedestals and splitting into cliques and personality cults around these leaders and that's bad enough But they also want to have a good reputation in the world. They want to look good in the world around them. And it's understandable. We understand it. But what Paul is saying, as we were reading through that, you saw it. Paul is saying, that's a real problem for Christians. It's the gospel. it's It's the message of the cross that saves us. And if you look at verse 18 of chapter 1, we read there, to us who are being saved, the message of the cross is the power of God. It's the gospel and the cross that rescue us from condemnation. The gospel is the best news ever. But that's not how it looks to outsiders. They see things differently. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And if these Christians in Corinth are expecting the world to think well of them, they're going to be disappointed. In his second letter to Corinthians, Paul is going to write this. We are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ amongst those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one with the aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. John Stott once wrote this, either we are unfaithful in order to be popular or we are willing to be unpopular in our determination to be faithful. I very much doubt, Scott Stott said, I very much doubt if it is possible to be popular and faithful at the same time. I fear we must choose. And that's basically what Paul's saying in the verses that we looking at tonight. To the world, the gospel looks weak and foolish. It just does. Paul looks at the people who'd be thought of of as important in his day. There they are in verse uh, 20. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Well, firstly, the wise person. Where's the wise person? Is salvation dependent on your IQ? gosh, I hope not. Is heaven going to be populated by the, the winners of trivial pursuits? What a nightmare. <laughs> if salvation is for the intellectual elite, what about the down and out, the disadvantaged, people with disabilities, a stroke victim? Are, are they excluded from heaven? And then Paul talks about the teacher of the law. And for him, that would mean the Jewish scribe, the expert in the Jewish Old Testament. Did these teachers recognize the Messiah when he came? No, they didn't. Did they understand who Jesus was? They simply didn't. Most of them were looking for a political figure or a military leader or a conquering king. and Well, Jesus just simply didn't fit the job description. And when Jesus came, they rejected him. And all their studies and all their learning and all their understanding came to nothing at all and got them nowhere. And it's not a great deal different for us 20 centuries later, I don't think. It's not the academics in our great institutions of learning who are leading people to salvation. It's not the the professors of theology in our universities. Most of them are every bit as lost as everyone else. Where is the teacher of the law? And then thirdly, Paul has talked about the philosopher of this age. And in first century current, that would mean those that belong to some particular school of philosophy. Like the Stoics who said you just have to grit your teeth and persevere through every difficulty and hardship. Or like the the Epicureans who said they wanted very little and they were just content to be alive and and these were the the debaters and the orators of the day these were the the intellectual elite and i don't think we're a great deal different now are we there are, there's capitalism and communism and pluralism and atheism and postmodernism and all the rest of the isms has any of them reconciled anybody to god i don't think so Is any of them good news like the gospel? What good have they done? Where is the philosopher of this age? He's nowhere. She's nowhere. They have no advantage. There were two main ethnic groups in Corinth when Paul was writing, the Jews and the Greeks. And Paul takes a look at both of them. Verse 22. Jews demand signs. And Greeks look for wisdom. So the Jews wanted to see miracles. Maybe they were thinking about the miracles recorded in their Old Testament. They demanded signs and wonders. And some people do that in our day, don't they? If God is there, why doesn't he just write the gospel in the sky for us in neon lights? Why doesn't he show himself? And then there were the Greeks. Greeks look for wisdom. They wanted a God who would fit in with their sophisticated philosophical schemes. And there are people like that today. Academics who know the Bible inside out, the languages, the history, the culture, the background, but they don't know God. They haven't a clue about God. So we read verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. A million miles from all their cleverness, a stumbling block. It means something that causes someone to trip up or or, or something that, that causes offense. Well, here's the offense of the cross. How can a crucified man be the Jews' long-awaited Messiah? The Old Testament plainly stated anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. A crucified Messiah? That made no sense at all. If a man ended up on a cross, that proved he wasn't the Messiah. There'd been all sorts of people who'd claimed to be the Messiah, and they'd all been crucified by the Romans, and that was the end of them. Remember when Jesus first told the disciples he was going to be killed by the Jews? And for Peter, that simply didn't add up. He said, it can't be right. He said, never, Lord, this will never happen to you. That's the cross as a stumbling block. And then there were the Gentiles, the Greek population. And Christ crucified was just foolishness to them. The Greeks and the Romans looked on a crucified man as the very lowest of the low, just as far as you could fall, the very bottom. No one of importance or significance could ever possibly end up on a cross. But now, here are these, these Christians claiming a crucified man as their savior. It's absurd, foolishness for them. The word Paul uses for foolish also means crazy, madness. The message of the cross is just just crazy to them. And you know, that's led some Christians to try to sort of doctor the gospel in an effort to make it more acceptable, less of a stumbling block. And the history of the Western world, particularly in the 20th century, shows what happens when people go down that route the harder preachers tried to make the gospel more attractive and less offensive, the more they tried to draw people to the church by leaving out the unpalatable stuff about sin and judgment, the more they tried to make Christianity easy and popular, the emptier the churches became. It's just a fact. Way back in 1941... Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous preacher in London, preached in St. Mary's Church in Oxford on the first Sunday of the Oxford University mission. And he preached as he would have preached anywhere else, and then he made arrangements to answer questions in a hall afterwards. And the hall was packed out, and the vicar took the chair, and as soon as he started, this young man jumped up, and he complimented the speaker, but then he said there was something he really couldn't understand he couldn't see that the sermon might not just as well have been delivered to a bunch of farm laborers or, or anyone else. And all the students roared and laughed. Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones got up and he said, he said he couldn't see the questioner's difficulty because until that moment, he'd looked on undergraduates and indeed graduates of Oxford or any university as just being ordinary human clay and miserable sinners like everyone else. And he held the view that their needs were just the same as everyone else's needs. And he said he'd preached as he had done quite deliberately. And that's what had upset the intellectual elite. That's what the Corinthians found insulting. The message of the cross offends the self-important. And the people who think they're in some way special or deserving... Because the gospel looks weak and foolish. And they don't want to look weak or foolish. Now, Paul doesn't say the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's really, really clever. No, he says in verse 24, the message of the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The message of the gospel isn't just the presentation of an idea to be put under the microscope and given marks out of ten by the scholars. The message of the cross isn't the presentation of an idea. It's the operation of a power. It's God's power that's in action. And it's not just that the gospel looks weak and foolish. So do people who believe the gospel The gospel looks weak and foolish, and Christians look weak and foolish. Christians look weak and foolish. Look what Paul says there in verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. It's not just the clever or the powerful, not just the successful or the, or the beautiful who get saved. Who does God save? Verse 21, it's those who believe the gospel, the message of the cross. Verse 24, it's those whom God has called. So Paul writes, not many of you were wise by human standards or influential or of noble birth. God does save clever people. But they're no more likely than anyone else to be saved. One of the leaders that played a prominent part in the revival in the 18th century in England was a woman called the Countess of Huntington. And she was very wealthy. And she used her money to fund gospel ministry and evangelism. And she used to delight to say that she was saved by the letter M. Saved by the letter N because she looked at verse 26 here and she said, Paul didn't say not any were of noble birth, but not many were of noble birth. But being clever, being important, being powerful doesn't make you any more likely to get saved than anyone else. And that should humble us. The world doesn't look at Christians and say, well, gosh, see these intelligent, sorted people who become Christians. I think I'd better look into this. And it's not just the gospel that looks weak and foolish to the world. So do we, Christians, look weak and foolish. If you want an impressive profile on social media, if you want to be admired by others, if that's important to you, you're going to have to keep quiet about your Christian faith I think Are you tempted not to tell people you're a Christian because of that do you keep quiet about it Just just stop and remember what Jesus said he said whoever is ashamed of me and my words the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory Are you ashamed of the gospel Are you because the gospel looks weak and foolish? Are you ashamed of being a Christian some of the time? Really, are you? Because Christians look weak and foolish, because we do, don't we? We do, whether we're university students with other students round about us who don't believe, or whether we're at school, in a class, or a neighborhood, or family. Christians look weak and foolish. I well remember when I gave up my job as a consultant surgeon to work for the church. And as far as my colleagues in the hospital were concerned, I was moving from being a somebody to being a nobody. They thought I was a fool. And humanly speaking, they were right. Isn't that the main reason we so often find sharing our faith with other people so difficult? We just reluctant to do it. We want to hang on to the respect of the world. But being a Christian makes us look weak and foolish to unbelievers. You, you believe what, they say? You believe that some dude got himself executed in Palestine 2,000 years ago, and he was God? You're not seriously telling me that, are you? That, that your eternal destin, destiny hangs on that? Oh, please. And we feel stupid. And we have to keep reminding ourselves that's how God works. What looks foolish to the world turns out to be wise. And what appears weak to the world is actually strength. So verse 27. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So let me just ask you again. Please think about this. Are you prepared to be thought naive and stupid because you're a Christian? Because that's the society you're in now. While people all around us are bragging about who they are and what they're like and what they've done, Christians are bragging about who Jesus is and what Jesus is like and what Jesus did. Think about the Apostle Paul. He tells us in 2 Corinthians that he developed some sort of disease or handicap. We're not told exactly what it was. But here's what he said hope it's going to come up in front of you. There we are. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Well, of course he did. I mean, that's not what Paul would have chosen. Probably people looked at him and said, oh gosh, what a disaster. Why did God allow that? Maybe he isn't up to the job of being an apostle after all. If he was really an apostle, God would heal him, wouldn't he? But here's the reality. Paul goes on. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, but the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Everything points to God's power. Paul's weak, and he points to God's power. Is that all right with you? Is it? Are are you prepared to look weak and foolish? It's going to affect your friendships. It might affect your prospects in the workplace. It'll probably undermine your reputation. Paul clearly felt like that. Look on to the beginning of chapter 2. When I came to you, he says, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. It's obvious from Paul's letters as you read through them that he was an intellectual giant. And he would get compared with the visiting, the traveling orators that used to travel around in Greece in those days. They used to go from place to place giving these impressive flowery speeches. Here's what they'd do. They'd arrive in a town or a city and they'd rock up in the marketplace and they'd invite people to give them a topic, any topic, and then they'd hold forth about it with great eloquence and mighty oratorical flourishes. I mean, how impressive is that? And then, then Paul would show up. And, and he, it would look as if he was completely out of his depth. He didn't invite topics. He only had one subject, just one. And he just kept banging on about it. Verse 2. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Just imagine how the people must have looked down on Paul. The gospel looks weak and foolish. Christians look weak and foolish. And preachers look weak and foolish. Maybe you're here this evening and you're not a Christian and you're listening to me and thinking, what a dope, what's he talking about? Sharing the gospel with other people is risky, and it's costly, and we're going to encounter ridicule and rejection. We're likely to meet with annoyance or pity. It's going to cost us friendships. Are you ready for that? It's easier to engage in clever debates about ethical issues or evolution or other world religions. That's much less personal. That's much more arm's length. And it's more comfortable and it's safer. But it's not the message of the cross. It's a cop-out. If you think you're doing evangelism, you don't get to Christ in the cross. You're not doing evangelism. Until you get to Christ and the cross and risk your reputation and stop worrying about what people think about you, it's not the power of God. You're on your own. If you tell people they can get right with God by their cleverness or their religiosity or or their good works, you'll make friends and they'll be flattered and they'll like you. But when you tell people that Jesus died for them because they can't make themselves right, then you offend people and you invite opposition now paul didn't try and dress up his message to make it more acceptable i resolved to know nothing while i was with you except jesus christ and him crucified and he knew he would be resisted and he knew he would be laughed at and resented Verse 3, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. But Paul finally, in the last analysis, Paul wasn't concerned about what people thought about him. He just wanted them to hear the gospel. So verse 4, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. He didn't want them to listen because he was impressive. He wanted them to listen because the gospel is true. It's the Holy Spirit who saves people, not human eloquence. And that's what Paul means when he says in verse 4, he came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. It wasn't anything flowery or miraculous to see. People crossing over from death to life under the sound of the gospel is miraculous and powerful in the work of the Holy Spirit. The gospel looks weak and foolish. Christians look weak and foolish. Preachers look weak and foolish. But then, so did Jesus. Jesus looked weak and foolish. Here are some words that were written about Jesus just about a century ago. He was born in obscurity. He worked as a carpenter. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through a mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves, and when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave. Yet... All the armies that have ever marched and all the navies that have ever sailed and all the parliaments that have ever sat and all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. Jesus looked weak and foolish. Yet on the cross, especially on the cross, Jesus was the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross looked weak, but it was strength. The cross looked foolish, but it was wisdom. The cross looked like a tragedy, but the cross was a triumph. What looked like foolishness and weakness turned out to be God's masterstroke and his great victory. The power of God and the wisdom of God So what are you going to boast about? Paul says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, forgive us for our worldliness. Forgive us that so often we are more concerned about what other people think about us than about what you think of us. Forgive us that we're so often more concerned about what other people think of us than about what other people think of Jesus. Please help us to be realistic in the 20th century in England. Please help us not to be trying to live our Christian lives in some compromised way that will allow us to be admired by the world as well. Give us the courage to walk in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ and to take up our cross and to pay the price for being a Christian in our reputation and standing and opportunities and popularity and to delight to belong to you. For Christ's sake, amen.